Living Philosophy explores the inspiring second lives of people who have successfully made profound changes to their careers and lives through self-reflection, insight, and practice. Living Philosophy is brought to you by philosophy2u.com, your hotspot for public and applied philosophy in the workplace, your headspace, and your living space. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed our past episodes, please take the time to rate and review our podcast. Help spread the word, help spread living philosophy. I'm your host, Dr. Todd May. We often hear about the importance of STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. It seems that if we want a strong economy, we need to get more students trained in these subjects. As true as this may be, we often accept this view at the cost of failing to understand the importance of the liberal and imaginative arts. We could dedicate an entire podcast to how science relies on the imagination in terms of the metaphors it uses. Cells, fields, substance, the flow of time, waves, particles, and much more. But perhaps more importantly, we also tend to miss how integral the imagination is to discovering new points of view and new possibilities of being. No longer content with the way things are in our present situation, we can imagine a world in which things are better through political, social, and technological advances and revolutions. Or, as with dystopian views, we can imagine what dire consequences will emerge if we continue with our existing practices and technologies. And what better genres of literature are there to tick all these boxes than science fiction and fantasy? Star Trek, Dune, Stranger Things, The Lord of the Rings, The War of the Worlds, and one of my favorites, The Day of the Triffids. I'm willing to wager that each one of us has been significantly influenced by imaginative fiction stories and that behind each scientific success, there is a fictional narrative that grounds and motivates the project in some way. But it's not all fun and fantasy. The process of getting a story published is immensely difficult. And at the center of this laborious process is the literary agent who ideally is a balance between creativity, critical analysis, and marketing. Our guest for this episode is Valerie Noble, who is Senior Literary Agent with the Donahue Literary Group. Her authors include Pamela Brandos, Erin Beatty, Emily B. Martin, Rachel Menard, Jackie Kalilile, and many more. Valerie graduated from Cal State Long Beach with a degree in food science and made the turn to the creative side after having a go at her own writing projects. We'll get to hear her thoughts about the role and power of science fiction and fantasy, and perhaps a few secrets and tips about how to approach literary agents with your own queries and manuscripts. Valerie, welcome to Living Philosophy. Thank you, Dr. May. Thank you for having me. So what was your path to becoming a literary agent? Was there a point in your life when you wanted to turn a love of reading into a career? My path is sort of diverged a bit. I was actually studying chemistry, food science at Cal State Long Beach, and it was a tough time in my life. I was a mom. I was a wife. I worked full time and I had decided to pursue my degree. I thought it was very important, kind of a late bloomer. I didn't go to, you know, when I had gone to school after high school, that was a tough time for me as well. So anyway, I went back to pursue my degree and uh, it was a lot of long days being there and studying chemistry. I was away from home for a lot. I was overwhelmed. I had lost a lot of friends, I felt, because I could no longer be in the same social situations or handle the same things. I, I was studying constantly. And it was during this time that a friend gave me a book to read. And for some reason, it, it struck me. That book was a book called The Hunger Games. I don't know why, but it, it just it lit something in me. And it gave me this idea. And I said, I, I, I have an idea. I can write this. And it began with an idea that I had about energy and the future. And so I started to do that. I started to write it. And what happened was it was an out for me, sort of a fantasy. It was drew me out of the real world and brought me so some joy while I was at school for long hours or away from home. I had this little other world that I lived in and it helped me to get through. And so at that time, I, I didn't think anything of it. It was something I shared with my friend that had given me this book. We, she helped me and we went back and forth. I was researching it. and That was just fun. It was taking me away from the dreary 
parts of what was going on in my life then. And as I kept doing that, and then I finished it, then I was like, what do you do with a book? I didn't know. I didn't know literary agent was even a job. I had no idea anything. And so that took me on another path. How do you get a literary agent? How do you do this? And so I did that myself. I queried. It was terrible. I didn't even understand what that meant. And so then I I attended a writer's conference, a, a very well-known writer's conference up in Big Sur through the Andrea Brown Literary Agency. And they, at that time, held it every year. I'm not sure if they still do. I, with what COVID happened, I don't know. But uh, I, I met a lot of other authors there that are still my friends now, one of whom I even represent. And it was life-changing for that aspect of my life. It showed me how many other talented people were out there, all different cultures, backgrounds, how interesting it was to learn from them and to share with them. And then I saw the panel and other authors and I was, it was just something I was interested in. I felt like I had an, a, an eye for it. What was good writing? What was voice? And so from there, I started to research, well, how do you become a literary agent? I could do this. Same kind of thing. I researched it. I did an internship. I did two internships. I learned how to read queries. I learned how to pick stuff. You know, I put in, I put in the time and then I was able to start as an associate and work my way up. So I always say one thing leads to another. And that's what happened to me. It started in one place and it grew to another place. That's so interesting. There's so many connections in your story with previous podcast guests talking about, uh, in one in particular, Hillary Hutchinson, the life coach, the change coach was talking about, in order to make the transition you want to make from one stage of life to another, you have to do the work and the research. And it sounds like you found that with the literary agent. And it's not only just making the change and doing the work, but there has to be something that speaks to you about the new phase you're moving to that has to naturally or organically or innately relate to your motivations, your desires, what you think it means to live a flourishing life and those kinds of things. And so so we're hearing that right now. And I want to go back in a moment to what you described as a non-traditional route to education, because I think that's really interesting. I think it's also very important to bring out, not just to members of the audience who are listening to this podcast, but I think in general, because a lot of people might feel a bit pigeonholed in thinking that they have to take a conventional route to education. So I'll come back to that in a minute. I just want to note one other interesting connection to the history of this podcast, and that's with The Hunger Games. So my first guest for doing this Living Philosophy podcast, he was very gracious to to be the first guest. His name is uh, Alan Bell, and he's a film editor for Hollywood. I think he's on the verge of retiring because I think he's now at the point where he's done doing these kind of projects. He's actually moved away from Hollywood, in fact, but he's he's still getting work because he's done a lot of work in the past. And one of the projects he did was The Hunger Games. He was the editor for The Hunger Games. So uh, that's an interesting connection. Going back to the non or the unconventional route education. So you graduated from high school and you you were a mother well, not at that time. Not at that time. <laughs> not at that time. Not that time. Class. Right. I didn't go back to school until, so I graduated from college. I graduated from high school in 1990 and I graduated from college in 2010. I always wanted to get my degree, but I had a hard time. And maybe we'll talk about that later, like knowing myself and figuring out what I wanted. And so when I did figure out food science that it interested me a lot. I always liked chemistry. I was 32 and I said, okay, I could go slow. And even if it takes me 10 years, I'll be 42. And I still have a lot of life ahead of me. And anyway, I'm going to be 42 anyway. So I might as well start now. And that was just my thing. I'm just going to start. And that was, that's what I did one foot in front of the other. So what was it about food science that caught your attention? And would you, if you had to compare your interest in food science to your interest in being a literary agent, was it quite clear that literature won out because there was a certain kind of joy in it? There might be a joy in food science and chemistry, but it's going to probably be of a very different kind that has to do with solving problems and seeing structures, I imagine. I work for a family business, my husband's family business, and that was what allowed me to have the freedom to go back to school. So I was lucky in that regard. But the other part of that is then when I graduated, I didn't have the heart to leave. And so it wasn't that I didn't necessarily want to be a food scientist. I did. I also did some internships with that and worked on some neat projects and I loved it. And what drew me to it in the first place to answer your question was I was visiting my mom in the Bay Area and 
her best friend, who I'd known a long time, but I didn't know she was a food scientist. And she invited us to go to her lab, Matson Foods, I believe. And we went to the lab and it was just uh, kitchens, labs and kitchens and refrigerators and different foods. And they were testing. And I'm like, this looks awesome. Combining that love for maybe cooking and, and chemistry, but in a way that seemed very relevant, like right now, you know, where you could, you could do different things with it. So I liked that. And, and so sort of married my love of science, you know, I didn't want to be a chemical engineer. I didn't want to be a teacher, a professor necessarily, but I loved the idea that I could still study science and, and have this chemistry degree essentially, but not be in the fields that I thought didn't interest me that much. So it was, was, that's how I began. And then the literature thing came later. I always had a love for books. I mean, that's how I got through many tough times. Maybe you'll find the same reading going into different worlds. I, I read, you know, we didn't have social media when we were younger, we read or played or, or something like that. You know, it wasn't, we didn't even watch as much TV. I've watched a lot of TV, but I'm going to edit that comment <laughs> out. <so. laughs> Not as much as we maybe have access to yeah. now is what I mean. You know, you didn't yeah. have a choice. And and you didn't, your parents didn't let you sit around and be on video games all day. You know, really, mine, you went outside and played. Yeah, it was a, it was a different era. Different that, time. Yeah, different time. So we heard you talk about the power of literature in general, um, and particularly with science fiction, there is that way to escape through the narrative world. And some people think that's a, a virtue of fictional narrative. I mean, it could be same with historical narrative if you read good historical books that are narrative based you can get lost in the the story of history as it were but particularly with fiction because it's presenting things that are of imaginative content in such a way that they reshape the way we see things because they introduce things we may not have encountered before and so some people see that as a, as a virtue some people probably see it as a vice they think well you know this is escapism you're you're going to get lost in this narrative world. If you're a fan of Stranger Things, there was in the most recent season. Uh, and it was funny because I didn't remember this until it was part of the episode because it's set in the in the 80s that Dungeons and Dragons is the work of the devil. And people who are interested in playing this uh, basically are, are part of a cult kind of thing. And that's, oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah. And behind that idea is this kind of these kids are escaping through something that is not good narrative wise and it's it's warping their minds in some way. So I imagine having all this experience representing science fiction and fantasy, in particular science fiction as a literary agent, you've seen the range of different kinds of subgenres within the genres about what's interesting, what works well, uh, maybe even what is really original, but you don't think a publisher is going to take it up because they probably don't have the confidence in being able to get the revenue or the profit from it as as they would expect. So is there anything about science fiction or if there's anything you can speak to how escapism is a virtue, what the power of science fiction and fantasy is, uh, the kinds of things you've seen come across your desk and the kinds of results you've seen when an author that you represent gets published by a publisher and the kind of interaction they get from either critics or from a reader audience about it being a wonderful story to share that it's just more, it's more than entertainment. It's its something quite powerful and something that we need in our lives as humans. I definitely agree. It's something that we need in our lives as humans. And I think you said it before, it's its a, a means of escape and of imagination. You had said that, and I, I circled this, they transport us. We can imagine possibilities. We can imagine something beyond our bubble, our worldview. And as a child, as a growing up, as a young adult, all through my reading years, I read books that my friends were reading or and I couldn't get into things like Danielle Steele or something that my other friends were reading that was really romance novels. But so I didn't feel that my life as a reader really opened up in the right way or the way that I that that touched my life until I started reading from other cultures, other perspectives in life other than my own. I always am drawn to that. Authors like Isabel Allende, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, when I started to read from from different, I just, the world opened. And you can say the same thing about science fiction, even though some people will say it's not here or it's the fantasy, but it's a possibility. And it takes us somewhere else. And, and maybe it makes you think of things 
in a different way. You're not, you, you don't feel limited in what you can imagine. And I'm drawn to stories that explore what the world might look like tomorrow. I think I, I say this a lot. And I say sometimes that could be te- very technically futuristic, how you see in these, some of these futuristic things. And sometimes it could be very re- regressive, like a book like The Road, if you're familiar with it by Cormac McCarthy, or A Boy and His Dog at the End of the World was one that, that the future is very sort of regressive. And I, I, I'm drawn to that as well. And you talked about like a dystopian sort of climate change or whatever, how we can really be going backwards rather than forwards in some cases. So I'm drawn to that. And I'm drawn to stories that are ultimately about everyday struggles, no matter the setting. An author named Emma Newman has a, a series that begins, I think, with Planet Fall. And that book takes place in space on another planet. And I, I won't get everything just exactly right about it. It's been a while since I read it. But what I loved about it was also dealt with some mental illness issues that were going on with her. And here's the scientist and here she is, but we're still dealing with the same things, you know, across across space and time, right? We're we're still dealing, we're still human and we can relate to each other in that regard. And it was one thing about food science that I love too, that all around the world and all these different cultures and ideas and the things that divide us, thing that really one of the things that unites us is food. We all eat, we all share food and in different ways and that was really interesting to me. So same with these stories, you know, we can see ourselves, we can relate in some ways and we can imagine. Can you recall the one book of science fiction mm-hmm. that you read that really opened things up for you that was a, a watershed moment of wow, this is this is a really powerful thing. I've loved a lot of science fiction, but one book that comes to mind a lot, and I really loved Cloud Atlas. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that book by David Mitchell. And what I loved about that book was the theme in it. It was also made into a movie. And I love the theme in it about how through t- through time and space or different different time, because that book goes from the past to the future to the present. It's it's very neat and, and sort of ties these people together, these actions together. And one of the lines in it is something to the effect of one of the protagonists is trying to make a change or trying to do something different. And somebody says to him, you're just a drop in the ocean. You're, you're never going to do this. And his comment was, but what is an ocean, but a multitude of drops. And I really love that, you know, that we do make a difference. And so Cloud Atlas was one of those that I loved. And it was later in life. I mean, it's, it's a newer book. It wasn't something I read as a child, but it was one that sticks with me for sure for that sort of feeling that I got. I'm going to turn to the other, the, not the dark side, but the other side of um, how, what you see as uh, the worst representation of science fiction, not in terms of specific work, but just in terms of things that tend to go very poorly in science fiction, I was looking at queries and what to query for science fiction short stories. And then one magazine had this list of things. If you have written on this, and it gave a super long list, you know, vampires, zombie, you know, not just vampires, but vampires that do this, zombies that do this, please, you know, it, the list was long. And it, it just was these, a list of tired tropes, I guess. And it says, please don't submit to us. I don't know. If you have a list of things like, oh no, here's another uh, query that involves time travel that, you know, for time travel stories to work, it's really got to be played out well because otherwise the it just becomes an inconsistent narrative. I don't know if you have uh, some thoughts. Of, like, time, time travel is, is definitely something I'm not drawn to in general, but one of the tropes that I see a lot, and I love it but I see it a lot. And, and it so really has to be different is the idea that people live underground behind walls enclosed in a dome, somehow sequestered. The outside world is poisoned, has monsters, some sort of something that it keeps them inside. Inevitably, the protagonist must go outside for some reason. They're exiled, whatever it is, they have to go outside. And then that outside is not what they were told in some regard. The monsters aren't monsters. The world is still going on in a different way than they were taught, something like that. So I do see that sort of same theme over and over. And it's difficult. And I have authors that query me say, I know that you love this kind and that kind, and I'll read their story and I like it. And I'll say to them, you're right. I do love this, but I just don't think I could sell it. And that's one of the heartbreaks with it is there's a difference between what I like and what I can sell. And these are two different Valerie's. When I was a younger agent, you know, I know that wasn't so long ago. I've been doing this a while, but 
I did want everything that I liked. And then I realized that, you know, and I did like things, conversely, things that are really different that I thought were unique, you'd get two different, won't appeal to a lot of large audience. So you're sort of stuck in that, you know, between different and the same. It's a hard line to figure out. So I think I want to ask a little bit about the publishing industry, because uh, it always seemed to me that literary agents have this remarkable power that if you get an agent, I don't know what the percent or the success ratio is if you get an agent of about published, but, you know, you just talked about the two Valerie's, you'll read stories you love, but it doesn't mean you can sell it. And I guess I never really thought about a literary agent having to sell an idea or a book or a manuscript to a publisher. I thought it was more of a, I trust this literary agent or the publisher trusts this literary agent. So this looks good as long as you can describe it in ways that fit within a certain rubric that the publisher has. But it sounds very much like you have to pitch quite a bit. You have to do your research about not just the publication house or the, the industry, but the specific people within the publication office you're dealing with, what they might like, what they might not like. How difficult is it to to do that kind of thing? Does it get easier over time because you've been pitching more and more as life goes on? Or is it always a struggle? Is it always, there's never an easy, an easy sell as it were? Certainly I haven't found that anything has been an easy sell. You know, it's, it is a lot of research, uh, just like hopefully when you're querying agents, you're doing a lot of research. Same with me. I do a lot of research when I'm going to editors and these, you know, and you always have to remember this business is subjective. It's tough. You're, you can't please everybody. So you're going to an editor and, you know, I've done my research and I know this editor likes these projects and nine times out of 10 of yes, because they know me, they know what I like. They're, they're taking all my projects. doesn't mean they're going to buy them. They have to read it. They have to have somebody else read it essentially, even if they like it. And then they have to bring it to like a, a their own acquisitions, especially with the big publishers, they have something like, and I, I don't know this perfectly, but they have to do profit and loss about where they think, how much they think it can make. And just a lot of different factors that go into them just being able to buy it. And and imagine that they're also having, you know, I'm one in a thousand that they might have gotten and maybe even one in a thousand that they got that day. It's daunting. It's a mountain. So it feels like a mountain sometimes and, and you keep at it. So just connecting feels <laughs> like small miracles, you know, but you do. And you keep at it and you do get better at it and you do keep doing research. And one of the problems is a lot of as editors move all the time, they leave, they move houses. You talked about percentages. I don't know about the percentages of what gets bought, but I know that when I started, the um, statistics was something like less than 10% of authors have an agent or were able to obtain an agent. So imagine, I don't know if that's changed and that's just when I was first starting this, it's probably lower, I would imagine. Maybe it's the same. And so from there, how many are published? I don't know that percentage, but I mean, it's tough. It's a tough road and it takes a lot of perseverance, a lot of research and a lot of patience because time from, if you look at how long it takes to query somebody, I could talk about that if you'd like, um, how long it takes me to answer, how long it takes me to answer submissions and then going to the next step submissions to an editor, how long that takes. I mean, it's a long time that you're not getting paid for anything, the author, the agent, any of it, you know, so it's, it takes a lot, a lot of patience. Don't quit your day <laughs> job is, is the phrase that a lot of aspiring authors probably hear if they have a day job, hopefully they do. And so I imagine the, the query process, so it probably takes a year to do the full the gambit of answering a query, and if you like it, then putting it through the rigmarole of, of getting it to other readers or editors to have a look at before it becomes a viable pitch to a publishing company? It can. I have a goal of I try to answer my queries within a month. I read every single one. I try to answer them within a month to give a yes or you know, a no. And then I try to have a three-month turnaround in my submissions. So I promise that. And I'm this is the first time that I'm falling slightly behind on that and have to send out a lot of apologies. And I think reflecting in this past several months now, I've had so many authors that have offers already. So what that does to me is I have to drop things and read theirs. And so things get pushed back, you know, because I'm pretty read everything in order, you know, I'm a rule follower. So I'll do that. But sometimes I can't sometimes, or if I have my own authors that are already with me that have a deadline or something that they, they come first. So it's pushed me back 
my timeline, but I think that many agents, that timeline is way longer than mine. You know, a year is probably good. Going on submission from there to editors is a different kind of process. Depends on how much editing they need, where we are, stuff like that. So it sounds like there's a lot of ethical considerations to take into account being a literary agent. And I don't know how standardized the industry is for literary agents, if there's actually training on meeting certain benchmarks or standards about response time or I'm really curious in one respect about rejection, because as a literary agent, you can be so much focused, you can be so focused on getting the next big author, you're forward looking, as it were. And so thinking about what it takes to find that successful author and then market that author to a publisher. Whereas if most of the queries you're going to get, you know, if 90% of the queries you're you're getting are going to be rejections in some way, is there a way in which you've thought about rejection? I know a lot of it having been on the other end from just not only from a literary perspective, but also an academic perspective, you often just get the bog standard letter, which just says something to the effect of, sorry, we enjoyed your your submission, but it just doesn't fit with our publication scope or whatever it might be, which may be true, which may not be true. And it, you know, the, the virtue of that kind of correspondence is it's it's friendly in the sense of it's not criticizing the author for points that they might have mentioned. But of course, the the problem with that, the viciousness of that kind of response is perhaps authors need to know what it is that really didn't work within their submission, that kind of thing. And and academia has its own version, but sometimes with academia, you do get the vicious statements that come right through from the reviewer. So you you get the, the best of both worlds and the worst of both worlds in academia. Rejection is a tough one. I definitely am guilty of just sending out four rejections on my queries. That's a time thing. And also a protection thing. Whereas you get people that push back and that will say things and not so nice and like attack you in certain ways. And it opens you up when you give a response to their response in some cases. And I think that most agents, their goal is to be constructive and helpful. You know, they want to give feedback to some degree at times and other time, and they don't because of this sort of pushback sometimes. It's careful. You know, I can't tell you why sometimes I'll choose to do it. I, I just have a feeling and it's over the computer that they'll be able to take it or won't be mad. You know, you don't want to offend anybody. You don't want to discourage them in any way. I have a folder called mean people about the people that have, I'm like, that have, you know, been upset about something or, or, said horrible things. And that's tough. You know, I'm not getting paid to do this. And so therefore, I'm not willing to take I have to be willing to take some some of that if I'm giving critique. And so I'm not I I don't have the the capability to do that on every single thing. It's too much. I have to the volumes too much. So on a submission that somebody has given me, and then I'm rejecting them, they do often expect more than just a form rejection. And I do try to give a little bit, I do try to say something personal about about why it wasn't right for me and give them some encouragement. But it's imperfect. Definitely, I'm imperfect and not always succeed at that. But I want to, I think sometimes for agents, more and more, and you can hear them talk about it becomes a protection thing, they're just not willing to take the abuse over it, you know, for a job that most likely they're not, they're not really getting paid for in many cases, you know, this is a lot of it is my free time doing this. And I don't want that, you know, it's, it's difficult. Living philosophy is brought to you by philosophy your public and applied philosophy hotspot for innovation, inspiration, and intelligence. Are you unhappy with your academic career? Do you need help transitioning to the next chapter? Hillary Hutchinson is a career coach specializing in helping academics leave academia. Academia is an unusual place with extremely rigid standards for promotion and due to structural issues with severely limited opportunities. The decision to leave academia can happen at any time in an academic career, whether just graduating with a PhD, deciding mid-career that the academic lifestyle or work content no longer appeals, or even figuring out what to do on retiring after a long academic career. Let Hillary help you now to figure out who you are, what you want to do, and start putting a strategic plan into place to achieve your own dreams. It's not about who you are. It's about who you want to be. Contact Hillary at transitioningyourlife.com or call 843-225-3224 to set up a complimentary appointment and find out more about how she works with clients. In this bold new book, 
The Infinite Staircase, What the Universe Tells Us About Life, Ethics, and Mortality, Hitech's best-known strategist, Jeffrey Moore, makes a groundbreaking contribution to the search for meaning in a secular era. Two questions fundamental to human existence have always been the metaphysical, where do I fit in the grand scheme of things, and the ethical, how should I behave? Religion is no longer a source of answers for many people, and nothing has replaced it. Moore uses his signature framework-based approach to answer these questions, taking readers on an intellectual roller coaster ride through physics, chemistry, biology, the social sciences, and the humanities. Along the way, he builds a metaphorical ladder that leads from the Big Bang to the need for ethical action in our daily lives. Combining an extraordinary range of scholarship with an accessible and entertaining writing style, The Infinite Staircase provides a coherent and unified platform for a full human life. The Infinite Staircase is available everywhere fine books are sold. Order your copy today. Understanding and relating to other people is key to the success of individuals and organizations, but doing so can be difficult and involves more art than science. Fortunately, there is a branch of philosophy called hermeneutics that explores how we can better understand and relate to others according to the stories we tell, what we say, and the histories and cultures that form who we are. Hermeneutics in real life is an online project that hosts virtual conversations with academics and professionals discussing how hermeneutics matters to our work and our lives and how it can be a catalyst for positive change. The conversations assume no prior background in hermeneutics and are hosted monthly, open to everyone and free of charge. To learn more about participating in these conversations, please visit our website at www.theletterh.com the letter N, the letter R, the letter L, dot org. That's www.hinrl.org. Is being a literary agent just on a commission basis then? The successful yes. authors you sell to a publisher are the ones then you get rewarded for? Yes, in my experience. I don't know if any other agencies operate differently, but in my experience and the agents I know, and you know, we are commission-based only. It's what we, based on what we sell, what we can sell. It sounds like a hard business. It's hard. It's tough. And, and most people are doing it out of love. You know, they the, love to do this. They love the, to read the, the challenge of it. A community that's like, that has the same love for this genre that you're, you know, you, you find those people and you're, you enjoy it and you're trying to get better. It's a labor of love in many cases. Do you have any advice for, from your experience about how to handle rejection, not just in terms of submitting something to a literary agent or for or to an academic or a professor, but just in general, because rejection is such a big component of our lives. And I think if we actually taught a class on how to handle things like rejection or criticism, which seems like it might be even more necessary these days, where from my perspective, it appears as if individuals are more isolated than they used to be. In our day and age, we were, we had to rely more on interacting with people in a in, in a present basis, being present to somebody uh, in person, as it were. Whereas today, so much interaction occurs through social media, through some kind of virtual medium that tends to magnify what a, a person's own insecurities. So if they see a comment made that could be interpreted one way or another, they, people tend to interpret that comment in a negative light about how it reflects poorly on them. But it seems, so you have any advice for an everyday person or for, for not an everyday person, for someone uh, who's involved in so much feedback loops of, of how their performance Rejection, rejection. Rejection, how, how to get through that. An easy thing to say is every everybody's experienced it, but I don't always think that's helpful. You know, like, it's fine to say yes. They could say even the biggest authors that you know of have experienced rejection, or the biggest academic in academia, you know, and and that's sort of helpful, you know, <laughs> that somebody else got reject received it. But but one thing is that I think it is helpful is not to take anything personally, and that's something that you can work on. If somebody doesn't like your work, it doesn't mean they don't like you. It doesn't mean they're they're telling you you think you just said it. They're you're not a bad person or or a dumb person or whatever it is. It's they didn't particularly like this work, whatever it is. They didn't want to buy it. They didn't connect with it essentially. It's nothing personal. 
And that's difficult, you know, because, and I, and sometimes I tell authors, you know, think about when you're in the bookstore and you're looking at books and you're picking one up and you're reading the back or you're reading something about it and you put it back down. You don't hate that author. You don't think that author is terrible. It just wasn't for you at the moment. And sometimes it's a difficult thing to put your finger on. It just wasn't for you. And that's okay. You know, and sometimes it just is, it's not the right connection and don't take it personally, even though it feels personal, right? It's not really personal. I'm not going to include this in the podcast. I was just thinking a lot of vicious academic comments and, and um, I guess the difference <laughs> feel is some, personal. sometimes academic comments are, are personal. You could see it in the reader review, in the review, because the editors will wow. send you the review report and, and some of the reviews, none, I've, I've seen it for myself, not a lot, but colleagues who uh, you know, some of the comments, particularly if they pick up if you're a woman and the reviewer is a man, you can, get some, saying that, yeah. you can get some pretty harsh comments. Uh, maybe I will leave that in the in the podcast. A lot of that doesn't have isn't a reflective of you, but maybe of the reviewer. You know, it's not about you. Still, it's about them. What What do you feel the need to say something like that or something so in such a way? Or if that comment is written in a vicious or personal way, then that has more to do. That says more about the person saying it than you. And so in that way, if you can think of it as not being personal, you know, whatever is in their life that they have to put that kind of a connotation on something that's somebody's hard work, time, whatever it is, that takes a different kind of a person to be able to do that, too. And I'm wondering if there's ever been a moment where someone has responded to you in a very congenial way, very polite, and has convinced you to change your position. Has that ever happened? So like, well, okay, wait, I will I will take this submission the next step and see what happens with it. Or are once you've made a decision, are you pretty much made you've made your mind up and or maybe you know some other literary agents who who changed their decision quite a bit just because that they're that kind of person or that's their personality. I think that I might have changed my mind based on something, but it's more to do with revise and resubmit that I liked it, but I've given them a it said revise it and resubmit it. And we've talked about it and, and maybe then I've changed my mind. I also have had several authors who query me with other projects, like they, I didn't connect on this one, but many times they'll send me something new, something different, you know, over and over again, maybe just one more time. And then I'll connect on that. So project specific, it's probably happens less, you know, if I'm not liking something, I'm not liking it, but maybe I like it enough to ask for a revise and resubmit. And that happens often, I think with many literary agents, like, Hey, this is my vision for it. This is what I think. If this, if th- this is how I'll say it. If if this resonates with you, and you think that that's valid or something that you want to do, they'll say, "Yeah, I like those ideas. I can do this. Revise and resubmit." I've had authors that say, "No, I don't. I don't agree with that vision. I'm going to leave it as it is, or or whatever. That's not the direction I see it. So we can disagree, and then then we know we're not right for each other. So it goes both ways. But I've definitely changed my mind on authors. Um, I've definitely taken a project after a revise and resubmit. I know because there's so many that I just adore that I just haven't been able to connect with the project on them, but I'm definitely willing to look again. You know, I've had authors say, I revised this. I, I want to try again. And I try to be open to that. And I want to go back to some initial comments because I am interested in hearing about how my guests on the podcast have struggled through their own personal hurdles, or that's not the right way of phrasing that because you don't struggle through a hurdle, but um, gotten over their hurdles and obstacles. And you mentioned at the outset that the period of transition, if we could sort of look at the transitioning from being enrolled at Cal State Long Beach and doing pursuing one love of academic research, and then it sounded like you were caught in two lives. You had the home life where you were a mother, you were, were expected to have certain duties, and then maybe your friends even saw you that way, but you were caught up in wanting to complete a degree in food science. And then suddenly, well, I don't know, it just seems like it was sudden, but um, it may not have been uh, that uh, then within a certain amount of time, you found yourself engrossed with literature once again and finding out what it, what it was to be a literary agent. So can you give our audience members a little bit more detail about the kinds of struggles you were facing and how you were able to resolve them? Or if maybe you didn't resolve them, how you were just able to cope with them until they dissipated in some way? At the time, it was difficult because before I had started school, I had sort of had this, you know, pretty active social life. I was involved in my daughter's school. 
she was younger. I, I even did was a brownie mom for a while. I did a lot of activities with the kids. I felt like I did party, you know, birthday parties or event, whatever. I, I did a lot more of that. And then when I started school, and as I got deeper into it, where you really have to put, you know, I'm taking money out of my household to go to school full time, I'm working full time, my life changed a lot. I didn't have time for the social stuff. I couldn't put the same energy into my daughter's activities or schooling, being on the campus. She was a little bit older at that time. So I felt okay about that was the okay time for me to do that. But it was still a hard transition. I feel like there was me before, me during, me after. And it was it was different. I, I didn't have the same confidence in like my friendships, my social life as I did before. I had a friend comment, you used to be so confident and I I didn't have that. And I don't know why that changed. So I struggled with finding another place and the writing helped to bring in new groups of people that were working on it with me and writing and and sharing ideas. And my, my brother was instrumental in some of the research that I was doing about my own writing. It took me to another world, you know, essentially like, you know, I had to have a new set of reality. This was what what I was doing now. And I wanted to have a good time. I was still young and I still wanted to make connections and I still wanted to do things, but, but my life looked different. And so I think in life, you have to be open to change. You change is going to happen and you can't just be stuck. You have to embrace it as to the degree that you're capable and learn from it. And, and I'm still learning. I'm still trying to change. I'm still trying to grow. I'm still trying to fit in, you know, in some cases. And I struggle with that. I struggle with my confidence. I struggle with, with that at times, but I'm working on it. You know, I, I'm, I'm working on valuing myself and, and finding my voice all the time. That's interesting. that loss of confidence from your former self seems like it's a direct product of you realizing you're going to be a different person and then trying to figure out or being, I mean, confidence is often arises due to being comfortable within a situation. Uh, not always, but uh, so it sounds, if I'm right, it sounds like finding your new self is a way of being uncertain un- with the unfamiliar and then trying to figure out what it is, how you're going to be. I make that comment because what I find difficult sometimes, less so now, but when I was a full time academic and I would see friends who were not academics and they were from that part of my life prior to when I was an academic. There was just a different way of socially engaging with one another. And uh, when I would see them, they would see me as that old person who was not an academic and engage with me in the same way. And it was such a shock for me because I was just used to engaging with academics and you just engage in a certain way. And it just took me a while to figure out how to make an adjustment. And now that I'm no longer an academic, I've probably gone the other way where I don't have much time for the academic. Uh, way of interfacing and the the etiquette, as it were, in the social mores, and I'm, I'm more prone to say things like "cool" or, you know, in response <laughs> to whether I think something is good, a good idea. Oh, that's cool, yeah. Uh, which you wouldn't necessarily get within an academic kind of setting. Just to say, I was when I would engage with my older friends uh, in in those non-academic settings, I I didn't feel confident. I felt like kind of an imposter. Because I couldn't act in the way that I used to. And it was a really strange non-coincidence for me or, or discordance. Yeah. And part of it was my daughter getting older. And we live in sort of a small community in some regards. And it's a community that I also went to high school in. And that was another case where I didn't feel like I fit in so well in certain ways in high school. And and so it's kind of that same feeling. You know, I don't look like the other moms. You know, I don't drive the same cars or I'm not in the same social, you know, and that's not to say anything about them, just about me. It's my own, you know, feelings, you know, so, and my, but my daughter could definitely see it. Seeing yourself reflected in your child's eyes sometimes is difficult, you know, and you're feeling parenthood, you often feel like a failure and whether you are or not, it just, that's, it was hard. You want to be, do everything right. And you just can't. That's a constant theme within the podcast when I interview guests is, is something revolving around failure and realizing, coming to terms with the idea that you can't always do things as well as you want or perfectly. And I probably have to remind myself about that, especially as I'm trying to transition into new projects right now, which have been quite demanding. 
but enough of me. Uh, I so we there, there's a couple of things I still need to ask you before we move to the okay. the usual closing questions. And one was a promissory note to audience members who might be interested at some point in submitting a query to a literary agency. And so the first question uh, is, do you have any tips for people who are going to submit to a literary agent to might that might grease the wheels a bit more or might make their project just give it just a little bit that it, it might make it easier for the literary agent to focus on as opposed to just see it as another query that's come across the desk. First and foremost, follow the submission guidelines. That's to set you above anyway. You know, follow their submission guidelines. All agents usually have them on their website. And I'm going to try to get my wording right. I saw another agent or an editor tweet about this, put this on Twitter, and it, it really reflects what a lot of authors do. Remember to tell us what your book is about, not about the book. A lot of authors tell you about the book, but not what the book is about. And so you really want to limit, it's, it, it should be very simple. My name is Todd. I'm you know, a little brief introduction. I've written this. This is the genre. This is the word count. Here's a brief pitch. Give me a back of the book pitch and make it, you know, you want your inciting incident. And, and I know a lot of authors talk, will give examples of queries and everything. So there's a lot of research. There's a lot of research you can do about this if you're unsure how to write a query. I think it must be hard as an author because when you're asked about what is your book about, you think you can't quite separate yourself from the whole world that you've just created or written. Or even as you're writing it, you're probably not even fully conscious about the kinds of themes and conflicts that are coming out of it in terms of um, what might be the, the glue that holds the whole the narrative sequence together, as it were. And then there's also might be the position of, well, if you want to know what the book is about, you should read it. <laughs> and that's not going to get people very, you know, it, but you, you you need to have a hook you know, try to think of it as your hook, you know, and, and to um, just to, and it, it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be everything because I'm going to read them anyway, but I can't speak for other agents. I'm not the only one that has said this. I agree with the sentiment that as goes the query, as goes the submission, meaning the better the query, the more thoughtful or the more well put out there, usually the writing follows. Even if it's not something for me or the right project, you can tell this author really they're serious. I'll, I'll say this. I have some advice because I, I didn't know exactly what the question would be, but I, I wrote some notes about this because there's some, you have some options without getting an agent. You also have self-publication, some other paths. So I think you really need to decide what your path to publication is. And then you need to reset those goals. You need to research it. You need to research your agents. You need to know why you're, you want to reach out to them you know, know who you're querying as much as you can. You need to keep track of them, the queries, because so many times I get queries over and over from the same queries over and over as if they never queried me before, but I know that they did. They should know it too. And if you're going to self, if you're going to look into self-publishing, which is a great option, you also have to think about about it as a business. Everything that you think that a publisher is going to do for you, which might be your dream, you have to do for yourself. So you need to research what that path is as well and treat it as a business that might need money put into it, that might need to be taken care of. Know that before, because I see a lot of authors as well who put their book on Amazon, publish through Amazon, and then clear me and say, well, I put it on Amazon, but now I want to get an agent. Well, you've already done that. And what you've done is you've shown that you're not serious. You just put it up there just to see what happens. That's not serious. It's not attractive. You should care about it as you would any other business that you that you wanted. Now turn to book recommendations. And if you have a few, that'd be great. But what books would you recommend to the audience to read? They obviously don't have to be within science fiction, but uh, what titles and perhaps a few comments as to why? I did talk about Cloud Atlas earlier, David Mitchell. I really like that. I like that there are several things in there that I connected to, but one of them, which I talked about before, what is an ocean, but a multiple multitude of drops, but also the idea of how somebody sort of becomes a godlike figure to, to somebody. in the So somebody in our past becomes a godlike figure in the future. And it's very interesting to see that process in this book, how Sony 451, if you read the book, you'll know how she is, becomes, she's a resistor and the things that happen in her, in her life. And then how 
future generations look back on the things that she did and sort of call her a god, essentially. And it's an interesting thing to see because it's reflective of like how maybe that parallels other things, uh, world things. So I love that, the idea that we are connected through space and time. I really like the book that stayed with me a long time was The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Have you ever read any of his books? Uh, Very interesting. That book scared me in terms of being dystopian. Uh, And I loved Emma Newman's Newman's work, Planetfall. I think I talked about that before, before Mars, which are science fiction, but also very human, very relatable, I think, across genres. So we've reached that point in the podcast where I get to ask my guests the two closing questions. And Valerie, the first one is, is there any philosophy or philosopher or artist or author who's been inspirational to the way you live your life and continue to do so? I was, as a young adult, given a book, and I didn't realize how popular it was at the time. And I don't know if this seems, I don't know what it seems. I'll just talk about it. And a friend reminded me of this today as I was struggling to think about this question. And it's something that I think about every day. And it's called The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. And it talks about, and and this was hearing these at a young age. It's something that I've really taken to heart and tried to embody. And it's four things. One is be impeccable with your word. Speak with integrity. Choose your words carefully. Two is don't take anything personally. That's a difficult one, right? Uh, don't rely on the opinion of others to shape you the value, you know, to value yourself. That's also difficult. Don't make assumptions. Be clear with your communications. Work on clear communication. Don't don't make assumptions about what anybody is thinking or feeling about you. You know, just just try to be direct, be clear with your communications. Something we can all work on. And going back to something you said, number four, always do your best. And sometimes your best is up here. And sometimes it's down here for whatever reason. And that's okay. You know, you just do your best at the time with the tools that you have. And that's what I try to do. I really do. Just try. I'm just doing my best. I say that a lot. And sometimes it's up here and sometimes it's down here. And I'm just trying. And do you have any parting words of wisdom for our audience? Don't give up. Keep trying. Pursue your passion. Be willing to change. Be willing to learn. Be willing to listen. Listening has helped a lot uh, in my life, listening to those who have come before me or just maybe have some wisdom. That's a tough one, but it helps. And just don't take things personally and keep going. You know, I don't want to be too cliche, but those are things that you have to, you really have to believe in yourself. You have to value yourself. Valerie Noble, thank you for being a guest on Living Philosophy. And we wish you all the luck with finding future authors and perhaps finding the next big project that will become the book title of the decade or the century. Thank you, Dr. May. Thank you so much for having me. If you would like to know more about Valerie's work, you can find her at the Donahue Literary Group website. That's www.donahueliterary.com. As always, you can check out the podcast blurb for information about Valerie and links to our sponsors. If you would like to sponsor Living Philosophy by making a donation, please get in touch with us via the philosophytoyou.com website. This is Dr. Todd May. Thank you for joining us on Living Philosophy, and I hope you'll join us for our next podcast. Until then, don't just read philosophy, live philosophically.